How you guys doing? <laughs> Clearly, the tryptophan has not worn off. Some of you guys like tryptophan. Yeah, you get it later. Um, so Pastor Ron is away, asked me to, uh, to fill in. And uh, what I want to do, first let's take a drink of water. Then is uh, kind of pick up where he left off last week. Now, if you didn't, um, if you weren't here last week, Pastor Ron talked about um, making a difference in a place called thankfulness. I'd really encourage you to get the DVD, take a look at it, watch it. He talked about the power of, of being thankful. And uh, uh, just as a side note, if you were here, how many of you had an opportunity? You remember the thankful chair, that video, the thankful chair? And how many of you had an opportunity this week, maybe not an actual chair, but an opportunity to step back and remember to be thankful? Yeah, so it was great. It was great. So some of you probably have really good um, stories about your family and getting to see people and stuff like that. Can I t take 60 seconds to tell you mine? Okay, so we have a garbage disposal that I didn't know. Well, we, it was Thanksgiving morning, and, uh, and we're going to go down to my in-laws uh, for Thanksgiving, and our job was to bring the mashed potatoes, and so we peeled like 10 pounds of mashed potatoes into the sink. And I really didn't know that that wasn't a good thing to put down the garbage disposal. Um, <laughs> I guess they stick to the sides of the pipes as it goes down, and then it clogs everything up. And uh, you know, so our, our house is an older house, and this kind of thing has happened in the past where it kind of gets clogged, and and uh, and, the, and then the, the 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 water comes back up, and it won't go down. And uh, so you know, what I did was I went and I got the plunger, and I got like this, and I start plunging. And of course, if it doesn't work, what's the answer, guys? Harder, right? And fix <laughs> it. Right, And so I'm plunging it, and then my wife tells me, hey, there's water coming out from underneath the sink. And so I had blown the pipes off the bottom of the sink onto like all the stuff that's under the sink, and it was coming out, and, and it was all awesomeness. And, uh, and, so, and so, um, so fortunately, I know a little bit of plumbing, and the reason I know is about 20 years ago, uh, we hosted, 20, 23 years ago, we hosted our first Christmas at, uh, at our house, and that was the first time we'd ever blown the pipes off the sink, and I didn't think that that would ever happen again. And, uh, uh, and so, so as my wife is like mashing the potatoes in the, in the kitchen, because I've got the entire kitchen apart, and, uh, and then had to wash the dishes later as I was snaking out the, uh, the potato things from out from underneath the main clear out in the basement. That was all awesome. And... Uh, um, I stepped back and I, I had to step back and I said, you know what I'm thankful for? And she goes, You're thank what are you thankful for? I said, I'm thankful that this has only happened once in 20 years. <laughs> so, so even if at the end of the day today, the only thing you can say is, I'm thankful that I'm one day closer to seeing Jesus face to face, just figure something out, right? It's not always going to be, oh, great things happen, right? Sometimes you're just, and boy, it could be really frustrating because we were like, now we're going to be late and I'm not going to, you know, I'm supposed to be taking a shower. I'm supposed to be bringing in wood. I have all the stuff I'm doing in the morning instead I have. And we had guests at our house. It was awesome, right? And, uh, and, and here I am cleaning out the bottom and, you know, it's oh, fantastic. And, uh, uh, and, you know, stuff like that happens. And so the question is, is what is your perspective going to be? And, you know, it, it's not always easy. And sometimes you can get frustrated. And, and, but the thing was is to step back and say, give me a reason to be thankful. And even if it's the fact that, wow, this hasn't happened in two decades. It's happened twice in the entire time we've owned the house. Well, at least I'm thankful for that. It hasn't happened a lot. 
right? And we didn't have to call a plumber because we've had enough plumbing problems that I know some plumbing, right? So, uh, right? so that's good. And, uh, and so find a reason to be thankful. It will change your attitude. And one of the things I wanted to talk about then today was about being thankful. Because, you know, it's easy to go, okay, go be thankful. But what if there was a way that you could generate a thankful spirit and have as a baseline a thankful spirit? And that's why I put up here, perspective creates thankfulness. And it's having the right perspective on things. And, and, and I'm going to talk about three things today. We're going to actually talk about um, some, some, some real weird stuff that will show how much of a nerd I am. And then, and then I'm going to give you three things, three lessons that I learned that if we apply those lessons in our life, that will automatically generate a thankful spirit. So we'll have a thankful spirit as a baseline, okay? All right, so um, the key... When Pastor Ron talked about making a difference in a place called thankfulness, the key to making a difference, or one of the keys to making a difference, is a thankful spirit. And the reason why one of the keys to making a, thank, being, making a difference is a thankful spirit is because thanksgiving invites the presence of God. I'm going to say that again. Thanksgiving, a thankful spirit, invites the presence of God where you are in your circumstances. It might not change your circumstances, but it certainly might because when God's there, he has a tendency to change things. The Bible says that when you were to go into the, into the Old Testament, when you were to come into the temple to worship, you were to enter into his gates with praise and into his temple with thanksgiving. You were to enter into his temple with thanksgiving. And there's a reason for that, right? And so the key to then thankfulness is perspective. But thankfulness is ultimately three things, and these are the three lessons we're going to learn. Thankfulness is ultimately generated from three things. One is humility, two is faith, and three is trust. Now, how do humility, faith, and trust generate thanks, uh, thankfulness? Well, let me tell you. Number one, when I talk about humility, this is what I mean. Humility in this area means I am not the source of my own blessings. I'm not the source of the good things that happen in my life. And so, so when Thanksgiving is a great time to witness to people, right? Because when someone says, hey, happy Thanksgiving, happy Thanksgiving, what are you thankful for? Well, I'm thankful for my family. I'm thankful for this. I'm thankful for that. You go, who are you thanking? Well, we say God. Well, because I'm the pastor, and that's the right answer. Um, but we, right? Answer's always God. Now, so, um, so, so, so we say, we say God, but what does a non-Christian say? They still say they're thankful. You go, to whom? To whom are you thankful? That's a stumper for them. They'll kind of go, hmm, I don't know. I guess I'm just generally thankful to the universe. Really? You're just thankful to the atoms in the sky? They provided your blessings. So humility, first of all, is recognizing I'm not God. Good thing for guys to remember. Like I said, we're fixers. We do things. We make things happen. And sometimes we, we translate that when things happen, it's by my own power. Oh, I, 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 I got this house. I've got my job. Really, who gave you the legs to get up in the morning to walk to your job? Right? He gives us the power to create wealth. He gives us the power to do these things. And so to whom are we thankful? So humility is, first of all, recognizing that I am not the source of my own blessings. So if I see blessings in my life, I'm not the source of them. Now, I may have participated in some of that, but the ability to participate is in and of itself a blessing that I had nothing to do with. Two, faith. 
When I talk about faith, what I mean by this is I mean that there is a present, unseen God. Faith is simply believing that something, though unseen, is true. Faith is believing in the present, unseen God, and that there is a present, unseen God who loves me, and that my benefit is wrapped up in his glory. Now, when I originally wrote this, I I originally actually typed the words, or started to type the words, that, that there is an unseen God who loves me and is working on my behalf. And I stopped that and actually smacked myself in the head because that's horrible theology. The idea that God is working on our behalf is bad theology because that makes him our servant. God is working on his behalf, but he knows that his, him being glorified and us being near him is the best thing for us. So is it on our behalf? Yes, but it is primarily for his glory. So let me tell you this. Faith is believing that there is an unseen God who loves me and that my benefit, my blessings, are wrapped up in his glory. And the closer I get to glorifying God, the closer I get to blessing. Three is trust. I need to trust that God is good, that he's not, he's not a referee that's blowing the whistle and throwing a flag and only pointing out the bad things that I do, that he's actually out. We talk about this with our kids. I try to catch my kids doing something good right? As opposed to just catching them doing something bad. Do we catch them doing something good? So God is good. He's not a referee. He's not, he's not a guy with a baseball bat ready to whack us over the head because we've broken the rules. He is good. And he is working with a knowledge and vision, a knowledge and perspective that I have no idea about. Do you know that God exists outside of time? Think about that for a second. God created time. Time, from a, from a physics standpoint, time is a function of the space-time continuum. It's a function of matter. And since God created it, he exists outside of it. And since he exists outside of it, he's sitting here, the entire universe, including the time-space continuum, now you know I'm a geek, sits right here. And since he sits right here, he can go, of course I can see the end from the beginning. Crazy. He has a perspective. He has has knowledge and a perspective that I will never have, but he is good, and I need to trust that he is good. And so when I don't understand, which is a lot of times, and by the way, unnecessary to me being close to God, my understanding is unnecessary to me following and obeying God, I need to trust that he is good and that he is working with knowledge and perspective that I will never have. Now let me tell you where this came from. We are going to do one of the most exciting things that I'm sure is one of the most exciting parts of the entire Bible when you guys read your Bible, because it is for me. We're going to read the genealogies. Woohoo! Yeah, I know, I know, I know. You guys get it in your reading plan on the U version, and you're sitting there, you're going like this. And be got, be got, be got, please let me just hit the little thing on here so I can check the box that I read that, right? I know I need to do it, but it's going to kind of a cursory thing. Be got, be got, be got, this guy, that guy, this guy, that guy, I can't even pronounce it. But there's actually some, some, some clues in there, and I want to help us. We need to slow down a lot of times because sometimes we miss stuff. So here's what's happening. I was studying the book, I was studying the book of Matthew, and I was studying the life of Joseph, little self-centered, I know, right? My name's Joe. I was studying Joseph. And one of the reasons why I've studied him is because I, you know what Joseph means? You know what the word Joseph means? 
he shall add. All my life, he shall add. Does that mean I'm supposed to be good at math? I don't know, right? And so I, so I went and I started looking at the original Joseph. But what I want to do is I want to take a look at this Joseph, the Joseph in the New Testament. And I started asking myself a question, some questions about it and got everything we're going to talk about today from here. So let's read. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, it says, The birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. As his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph. Now, let's stop right there and understand that what betrothed means it was actually not quite married, but more than engaged. You were actually bound to each other as if you were married, but you hadn't had the marriage ceremony yet. The way that it worked in Jewish cultures, they would have a betrothal ceremony, and then the son would go away, the guy would go away, and he would have to build the wedding chamber, and he would get ready. And that took almost a year, and everybody would kind of get ready for the wedding, and then they'd come together and have the wedding, right? So there was a period of time where they were not quite husband and wife, but more than just engaged, okay? So it says, now... Um, when Mary was betrothed to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Now, it says here in Matthew that it was of the Holy Spirit, but of course Joseph didn't know that, right? All he knew was that his fiancée was pregnant, and he didn't do it. Then Joseph, her husband being a just man, not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. Put her away means to divorce her. And to do it secretly. Now, here was the thing that caught my attention. You see, in Leviticus 20, 10, it talks about what the penalty for adultery is. In Leviticus 20, 10, I'll just read it to you. It says, the man who commits adultery with another man's wife, he who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall be put to death. Now, Joseph had an interesting choice here. She was pregnant. He knew that he wasn't the father, which meant that someone else was the father. And of course, in his natural mind, it was somebody else in the village that was the, that was the dad, right? And he had a choice. He could maintain everyone else's view of his righteousness. Hey, I didn't do it, and accuse her publicly, which meant that she would be sentenced to death. Or he could take her to himself and say, yeah, she's pregnant, and we're really not married yet, which means I did it which meant that the two of them could be sentenced to death, or at the very least, they would be ostracized because they had committed fornication. And so he was trying to figure out a way to do it secretly to cover her. See, that protection there showed that he really loved her and that he was a loving man. And I stopped and I thought, why would Joseph be a person who would do that? We don't know a whole lot about Joseph. He's kind of a kind of a supporting actor in the, in, the first part of the, uh, uh, in the first part of the Gospels, and then he just disappears, right? And so I was, I was wondering to myself why this is, and then right down below, it lists the genealogy of Jesus. Now, there's two genealogies listed in the New Testament. There's one here and one in Luke, and the one in Luke is actually the physical genealogy of Jesus, which is Mary's genealogy, and it goes all the way back to Adam. This is the book of Matthew, Matthew being, a, being the Gospel written to the Jewish people. is actually his legal um, genealogy, and therefore it's Joseph's genealogy. So what we're about to read here is Joseph's genealogy. And I'm going to go through it just like you would, as fast as possible. <laughs> Some of the names are tongue twisters, but we'll stop. I'll read through it, see if you pick anything up that might be interesting. Matthew chapter 1, verse uh, 1. says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. 
Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar, Perez begot Hezron, and Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Aminadab, Aminadab begot Nashon, and Nashon begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab, Boaz begot Obed by Ruth, Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David the king. David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon begot Rehoboam. Rehoboam begot Abijah. Abijah begot Asa. Asa begot Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat begot Joram. Joram begot Uzziah. Uzziah begot Jotham. Jotham begot Ahaz. Ahaz begot Hezekiah. Hezekiah begot Manasseh. Manasseh begot Amon. Amon begot Josiah. Josiah begot Jeconiah and his brothers about the time that they were carried away to Babylon. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconiah begot Sheatel. Sheatel begot Zerubbabel. By the way, very Pentecostal name. If you just say Zerubbabel, 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 you'll be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Um, <laughs> these are things I th I'm thinking while I'm reading the genealogies. Um, Zerubbabel begot, it is a cool name, isn't it? Zerubbabel begot uh, Abiud, Abiud begot Eliakim, Eliakim begot Azor, Azor begot Zadok, Zadok begot Achim, Achim begot Eliud, Eliud begot Eleazar, Eleazar begot Mathan, Mathan, uh, Mathan begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who was called Christ. Moving on. You notice anything in there? First of all, what did you notice? Anybody notice something unusual? Yeah. Who's that? He's from the line of David. Okay, that would make total sense. This is this means it's from the line of David because he promised David that he would have a because of who David was to God. Because he was a man after his own heart. God made a covenant with David that there would be one who sits on the throne forever. And that was a messianic prophecy in the Old Testament that the Messiah would come through the line of David. So he was of the line of David. Anything else? It's through Judah, not Joseph. That's weird. That is weird. And that got me thinking, why wasn't he through Joseph? Why was he through Judah? Who was Judah? Why was Judah there? We'll get to that in a second. We actually have a PowerPoint presentation coming up. Woo-hoo! <laughs> Exciting stuff. Um, uh, what else? Anybody else notice anything as we walk through there? How about this one? Just ask yourself the question. First woman mentioned in the Bible by name. Well, Eve, right? Second woman mentioned in the Bible by name? Second woman mentioned in the Bible by name? Sarah. That's it. Noah's wife doesn't even get, like, she's one of the last eight people on the face of the earth. She just gets Noah and his wife, right? Women were not mentioned in genealogies. Genealogies came down through men. Women were not mentioned there. Did you notice there were several women there? Now, any time you're reading a genealogy and it kind of steps out and makes a little statement, you should stop and ask yourself, why, why is it in the history of these hundreds of years that somebody steps out and is mentioned by name? So, what I did, seriously, is I made a PowerPoint presentation to figure this out. So, uh, let's put this up here. And, uh, and we're going to th go through this, and then we'll get to the point of what the, all this is about. Okay, so this is Jacob whose name was changed to Israel. And these are the 12 tribes of Israel that came out of these kids. So Jacob, if you remember, Jacob took off because he had really ticked off his brother. And uh, actually his brother was going to kill him because he had stolen his blessing and his, uh, and his inheritance. And so, so his mom sent him off to their uncle Laban. And, and, and when he went over there, Jacob met Rachel. 
and he loved her a lot. Now, Laban was not a cool guy. Laban said, hey, Jacob, you want to marry my daughter, Rachel? She's really cool. You really like her. Um, work for me for seven years. And then, so first you work for me for seven years, and at the end of seven years, then I'll give you her as a daughter. And the Bible says that Laban was, or Jacob loved Rachel so much that uh, it said seven years was like seven days, and, and, they got, and, and then here they are, and they come to get married, right? Now, the only thing I can tell you is that the, in the ancient um, tradition, the woman was veiled for the wedding, right? And there was more than likely some drinking going on. It doesn't actually say that, but this is the only explanation I have for it. But if you go back in the Old Testament, here's what happened. Jacob has a wedding, and he gets married to Rachel. But when he wakes up in the morning, the next morning, after the honeymoon night, it's Leah in the bed. Oh, yeah, it's all bad. Oh, go back and read the Old Testament. The Old Testament is like rated R. It's all, it's all, all badness. You shouldn't read the Old Testament unless you're 17. Yeah, it's all bad. Okay, so here's the thing. So he wakes up and it's Leah. And he goes, well, my goodness, what's going on? He goes back to Laban and he goes, you tricked me. Now I got married to somebody they didn't think I was getting married to. The woman that I work for is standing over there with her head down, and I'm married to this woman. And Jacob says, and, and Laban says this, well, you know, it's not the way that we do things here in this side of town. Um, Leah is the oldest, and the Bible says that Rachel was very, very pretty, and Leah was not. Now I want you to picture this for Leah's sake. I want you to think about the conversation that Laban had with, 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 with Leah and Rachel where he tells his daughter, listen, the only way we're ever going to get you married off is if we trick him and get him drunk. Because after all, Leah, you know, you're not all that. Think about what that did in Leah's heart. A girl who grew up probably thinking, am I precious? Am I desirable? Am I wanted? And she's getting older and older, and she sees her, her sister, Rachel, who's probably really nice and volunteers at the local soup kitchen and, and can sing and is athletic, right, and writes poetry or something, right, and is smart and does math, right? And so here's Rachel. She's everything. And here's Leah. And there's probably this competition that's going on. And Leah's got to feel like a crumb at this point. But I wanted you to picture what that conversation had to look like from her own father had to crush her soul. So she gets married, and he says, hey, Laban says to, to Jacob, hey, don't worry about it. Keep your time with her, which means spend your honeymoon with her, and right after the honeymoon, I'll let you marry Rachel, but then you've got to work for me for another seven years. But now, right after the honeymoon that, they, that, that Jacob and Leah had, he married Rachel. Rachel was the wife of his love. Leah was the wife of deception. They had a competition there, that was competing there. And so what God did was he took Rachel's womb and closed it, and she couldn't have kids. And most of these kids come from Leah. The problem is, is if you go and you look at these names, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, Issachar, Zebulon, those are all from her or from one of her servants. And then, um, and then Joseph and Rachel are from, Joseph and Benjamin are from Rachel. As she starts naming these kids, Go and look up the names. You know what, like, for example, you know what Dan means? Or it's Gad. Gad means troop. Gad means troop. Do you know why Gad means troop? Because Leah is mocking Rachel with her kids' names. She names him troop. She goes, he's brought me a troop and more are coming, and you can't have any kids. Think about, though, this is Thanksgiving must have been awesome. <laughs> right? This is why Joseph 
means he shall add, because that was her firstborn son. And she goes, I've had a kid, and he will add another. Like, they're, they're, they're fighting with their kids' names. Now, these are all bad circumstances, and I can understand this about Leah. You know, there's no evidence that Leah ever developed a thankful heart. I, I, there's no evidence that she didn't, so I'm not putting her down. But there's just no evidence that she did. Because the kids who named were after her, even they, they never seemed to reconcile with each other. And quite frankly, I, you know, if you tell me they never reconciled with each other, although I would say it's wrong and they should have, I, I kind of get it, right? There was a lot of damage that were done. But what I want to show you is, is Judah right here. Because Judah, see, if you were going to bring the Messiah, you would say that the Messiah should go through the firstborn, which is Reuben. Or if you say that this was the, the line of deception and this was the line of love, then, sh then the Messiah should come through Joseph, which he did not. Instead, came from the, like, the middle child, right? Like, what's special about Judah? What happens with Judah? So let's take a look at Judah's line. So go ahead and, and do that. So Judah comes from Jacob and Leah, right? Now, Judah had a son named Perez by Tamar. Now, the way that this looks, it kind of makes it look like Judah married Tamar, and Judah's wife was Tamar, and they had a kid. That's not actually really true. Actually, it's, it's a lot more weird than that. Actually, um, Tamar was his daughter-in-law. This is why you should read the Old Testament. You're like, wow, it's like Falcon Crest. All right. So it's all bad. So here's what happened. Judah, Judah has a kid. He has a, he has a kid, and, and, and his kid marries Tamar. And then his son dies. Now, in the Jewish tradition, what should happen, uh, by law, what should happen is his next son should marry Tamar, have a kid, and then that kid gets the first brother's inheritance. That didn't happen, and the second son dies. So Judah sends Tamar back to her father's house as a widow and says, wait till my next son is old enough. But the reality is he had no intention of ever giving Tamar another child of his, because he thought, hey, you're cursed somehow. Every kid I give you, they're dying, and that's kind of weird. And so I don't want to give you any more of my sons, because they keep dying. And so he deceived Tamar, and so Tamar is living out. She's living as a widow, as a young woman. It's not like they had jobs. Women could have jobs back then. They needed the support of somebody. So she couldn't live in her father's house as anything other than a widow, and here she is as a young woman. Now, here's what happened. She knew that, that Judah was deceiving her and keeping her from, from, from being provided for and keeping her from life. And so what she did, um, Judah's wife had died, and it had been a couple of years, and he was off on a trip, and he was going near a village, and, and Tamar knew about it. So Tamar takes off her mourning clothes and puts on this outfit that makes her look like a prostitute. She goes out and she hangs by the side of the road. And she goes, hey, Judah, hey, man, how you doing? And he goes, hey, hey. And, uh, and so they make an arrangement. He says, hey, I want to uh, hire you as a prostitute. And she goes, what are you going to give me? He goes, well, I've got a herd of goats out in the field. I'll, I'll give you one of my goats afterwards. And she goes, well, okay, yeah, but the goats out in the field, what are you going to give me as, uh, as surety? And he says, well, I've got this signet ring, and I've got a cord that goes to the signet ring, and then I've got my staff. I'll give you those, and then we'll go and do our thing. And then afterwards... Um, I'll go, and I'll go with the goat, and I'll come back and redeem this. She goes, sure. So he hires her as a prostitute. They go into the chamber, do their thing. He goes out. She takes off and goes back to her father's house. He comes back with the goats like, ah, I'm not going to search for her. I'll let the signet ring go. I'll let the staff go because I don't want to be ashamed of the fact that I hired a prostitute because actually that's sinful behavior. Even though my wife has already died, that's still a sin. So I don't want anybody to know that. So listen to what happens. Um, 
three months later, finds out that Leah is pregnant, or that Leah, that Tamar is pregnant. And, and, and we're going to, well, actually, you know what? I wanted to go through. Yeah, can we put, can we put up this, the slide and then we'll come back to the slideshow? I, I messed that up. Can we, can we put this, the, the verse up there? I want to go through the story. Um, what happened was, is that three months after, it says this is in Genesis 38, it says, uh, it came to pass after three months that Judah was told, saying, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has played the harlot, and furthermore, she is with child by harlotry. So Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. Wow. Judah, the righteous, is now going to be judge, jury, and executioner all in one. And when she was brought out, she sent to her father-in-law, saying, by the man whom these belong, I am with child. Please determine who these are, the signet and cord and the staff. Oops. And here's what changed. Here is what changed. Here's what changed Judah's life. Judah acknowledged them and said, she is more righteous than I because I did not give her Shelah, my son. And then Judah never knew her again. He didn't treat her as his wife. He brought her into his house as his daughter and raised Perez as his own son because it was his own son. Treated her as his daughter and, and gave her all the full benefits of being his daughter and raised Perez as his son. Now, I said that the keys to thankfulness were humility, faith, and trust. Jacob was probably not humbled, but Jacob was humiliated. But it did humble him. Jacob was humbled in that moment when he said, she is more righteous than I am. Someone who actually went out and prostituted herself is actually more righteous than I am. He saw himself for who he was, not who he thought he was. He went from judge, jury, and executioner to someone who was lower than a prostitute right in that moment and said, she was more righteous than I. Judah was humbled. The second thing is that Judah was reminded about who God is and who controls his story, huh? Because God knew what he was doing. God knew what Judah was doing. God knew what was Tamar was doing. And God even allowed the circumstances. I'm not saying he agreed with it, but he allowed the circumstances and was going to work those circumstances together actually for Judah's good and Tamar's as well. But he was reminded about who God is and who controls the story. And I'll tell you what, the final thing is that Judah was changed. Now, it doesn't say how. The Bible doesn't say anything more about this story. So it doesn't say how Judah was changed. But it is evidence, is evident because Judah left a legacy in his family of humility and of being open to the fact that God is bigger than what I'm doing and perhaps I should step back and have some perspective. Let's put that back up there. I want to show you something. I want to show you the rest of the line of, um, of, of, of these guys here. So Judah and with his daughter-in-law had Perez. So go to the next one. Now Perez, down the line, a few generations, had a son named Solomon. Anybody know who Solomon is? Okay. So you remember when um, when uh, at the Battle of Jericho? Do you remember the Battle of Jericho? Joshua says, hey, go over. Now, before the battle happened, he sent spies into Jericho to spy out Jericho, right? And, and one of those spies was Solomon. Now, you remember the story? They get spied out, and they're in there, and then they find the, the, the people in Jericho find out that there's spies from Israel coming, and they're searching for them. Do-do-do-do-do-do-do. They're searching for them. And these guys wind up hiding in a prostitute's house. 
right? Now, the prostitute's house was built into the wall. The Jericho was so full of themselves and they didn't think that anybody would ever conquer Jericho because the wall was a double wall, extra thick and stuff like that, that they actually built houses into the, in, in, into the wall. And so, so Rahab, the prostitute, her, her house is in the wall. And she hid the spies, and then she told them which way to go to get away, and she said, what I want you to do is, I believe that your God is the true God, just remember me. And if you remember, when the walls of Jericho fell flat, a section of the wall that had Rahab's house in it didn't fall. Solomon was one of the spies. Now, Solomon got married. Guess who he got married to? Ooh, that's cool. It says it in here. It says, Solomon... Um, and he, and he, uh, be, Solomon begot by Rahab. So Solomon married Rahab. Solomon, the spy of Israel, married a famous prostitute, a famous prostitute from a pagan nation who then trusted God, and God brought her into this story here because Solomon and Rahab had a son, and guess what his name was? Boaz. Their son was Boaz. Yeah, that Boaz... Go ahead, put that up. That Boaz from the book of Ruth. Hmm. You wonder why Ruth, who was a Moabite, not an Israelite, who was the daughter of the high priest of Moab, who came to believe in the God of Israel and came back as a widow and, and was actually gleaning um, like picking up scraps in, in, somebody's, in somebody's field and wound up in Boaz's field. You wonder why Boaz was so open to the idea of Ruth? It was because he had this legacy from his own parents where his mom and dad said, yeah, this is not such a bad thing. You should be open to what God might be doing. And so he was open to Ruth the Moabitess. And Boaz was actually older, there's some evidence that Boaz was an older man. He wasn't like, you know, in his 30s or something like that. But he was an older man, and he waited. He was a righteous man, very cool guy. And, uh, and Boaz and Ruth got married. So here's what we find. We find Leah, the woman who was cast away. We find Tamar, who was the daughter-in-law of Judah who played a prostitute. You have Rahab, who was an actual prostitute. You have Ruth, who was a Moabitess. All these people are in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Isn't that interesting? Anyways, Boaz and Ruth then have a son. Go ahead. And they have a son named Obed, and he has a son named Jesse, who has another son named David, king of Israel. So David's great-grandfather, great-great-grandfather was Boaz. David's great-great-grandmother was a Moabitess high priest, and his great-great-great-grandmother was a prostitute. So was wise Mary. Say that again? So was wise Mary, Yes. So check this out. This goes up here like this. Now ask yourself the question, what is God doing here? What kind of a legacy is he building here? What is happening from Judah? Judah saying, hey, be open to people that might not be like us because maybe God is, has a plan for us. And down here you find that David, now this really isn't cool because David had a, one of his best friends, Uriah. Now Uriah was one of his best friends, actually built his house next door to David. David and Uriah probably got together for a Passover feast and had each other over to their house and hung out together. And then David, when Uriah was away, happened to be looking out over the balcony and seeing his best friend's wife taking a bath. And, and he brought in Bathsheba. 
And what was she going to do? Say no to the king? That was a death sentence. So she allowed herself to be taken by him. And David and Bathsheba, go ahead and put her up. David and Bathsheba, he killed his best friend because, to try to cover up adultery that he had. And then the child that they had died, but they had more children. Solomon was one of their children, was the child of David and Bathsheba. And then below that, about six down, they had another son named Nathan. Now, Nathan, he was a child of the king, but he wasn't in line for the, for the throne at all. He was just a prince. And so you find out that later that Nathan then, through a long time, about 400 years or so, go and put the rest of it up, has a descendant named Joseph, who is the husband of Mary, who is the mother of Jesus. Pretty cool stuff just from the genealogy, huh? Maybe we should slow down when we read our Bible a little bit. Here's the thing I see. Here's the thing I see. I see the women, many of them damaged. Nobody chooses prostitution, guys. Nobody, like, they don't grow up going, ah, I want to be a prostitute, right? That doesn't happen, right? They're forced into it, desperate, right? Taken advantage of. Here's somebody who was called a prostitute, like, why, an adulteress. Why was she, why was she uh, having a kid before they got married? People could do math and count nine months even back then. Right? Why is this? There was such an opportunity for bitterness in there, and yet you don't find it. You find Mary saying, do what you need to do, Lord. And you find Joseph saying, I'll cover you. Why do you find Joseph saying, I'll cover you? Because there was a legacy of faith that was left there. Um, there's some things that we learn here. The things that we learn is that somehow... What changed in Judah's life reverberated down. Did he see it? Did Solomon see it? Did he know, what, did he know that he would have a, a great-great-grandson who would be king? Did he see what was happening here? Probably not. Probably died with it. But the thing we need to remember is that in spite of your circumstances, in spite of your circumstances, wherever you are, the one thing we need to remember, God is in control. He knows what he's doing. He has a perspective, and we can trust him. He is good. And no matter where you are right now, it's not over. It's not. It's not over. It's, listen, it's not over even if you die. If God has made a promise to you, that your death is immaterial to whether or not God fulfills that promise. Do you know there were two prophets, Elisha, Elijah and Elisha? And Elijah did all these miracles, and then, then, then the thing that God promised to Elisha was a double portion of the, of the anointing that was on Elijah's life. And he actually said, for every miracle that Elijah did, Elisha would do two. And you can go and you can look in the Bible and you can count them. And you can see, he did one, he did two. He did one, he did two. He did one, he did two. Elisha dies on his deathbed and he's short a miracle. Elijah had risen one person from the dead. Elisha had risen one person from the dead. And Elisha dies. Does that mean that God's not true, that the Bible's not true, that the promises aren't true? Because you know what you find out years later? There's these, uh, there's these bandits, and they're, they're going throughout, the, they're, going, they're going, they're doing their bandit thing, and the one, guy falls, the one guy gets killed, and as he gets killed, he falls into a hole. And when he falls into the hole, he's dead, he falls into the hole, and he comes back up alive. You know where he fell? Into Elisha's graves. Elisha did his last miracle as a skeleton. 
If God says something, it's not over because he's good and he's trustworthy. And there's something that he's working. His story is longer than what our perspective generally is. I want to take a look at this, um, at this video, listen to the song, and, and, and listen to the words of the song, and then we're going to come back and, and, and talk about the lessons that we learned from this. So, go ahead. And they are inside your head. You got a voice that sounds. You won't get past this one. You won't win your freedom. It's like a constant war. And you want to settle that scar. But your brows they're beaten. And you feel defeated. This goes out to the heaviest heart. Put it in your past, oh, feel the way to live in, it's redemption season, long live the young at heart, cheers to a brand new start, we're involved in breathing, to live a life thinking about 
Rahab, talking about being over, right? You're the last of your people. You're standing there amongst the rubble. Everyone and everything has been killed. Sure, you, you, you can go with the nation of Israel, but you'll always be an outsider. Until somebody, but she still did it, and she still did what was right, and she didn't know that someone would say, come, let me take you as my own. You'll be my wife. And then she gets inserted, not just into the covenant of Israel, but into the redemption story and into the lineage of Jesus Christ himself. I'm telling you, no matter what circumstances you may be facing, the good ain't going to last. The bad won't either. But God has an overarching arching story. I want to take in the last few minutes and give you three lessons that I learned from this story that hopefully we take away. Lesson number one is learn humility. You see, your story isn't just your story. It's God's story as well. And he has a longer view. Because I need to remember that I'm not the source of my own blessings. And when I remember that, I remember that my story isn't just my story, but it's God's story as well. And he has a longer view of even my story and how it fits into his glory. Isaiah chapter 55, verse 1, and we'll read 1 through 2. We're going to skip down through 6 to 6 through 9 just for time's sake. Listen to what it says and think about the issue of humility here. It says, yo, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Yes, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Boy, that's a really good question, isn't it? Why do we spend our life and our energy and our time and our resources on things that don't ultimately matter? When the things that really matter, he says, are free and in his presence. Listen carefully to me. When the Bible talks about somebody listening to God, it is a position of submission and therefore a position of humility. It takes humility to listen. Guys, we all know that, we're, that as long as we have gas, we're not lost. <laughs> right? We know that we fix things, that we find things, that we're conquerors, that we do that kind of stuff like that. But maybe we should step back and recognize that although God has made us men and he's made us guys, he also calls us his child, and we need to listen. He says, listen carefully to me and eat what is good and then let your soul delight itself in abundance. God isn't mad at you. God doesn't, God doesn't want to deprive you of things. He actually wants a life of abundance. Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. God wants good things for us. He just wants us to remember that he is the source of those good things. Then humility is required there. Listen, he says, seek the Lord while he may be found. This is verse 6. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. The idea of, of, of repentance, and maybe that's needed in some, in some of our lives today. The idea of repentance, if I'm going down this path and, and I think that I'm justified, but I'm doing wrong, the idea for me to turn away from what I'm doing and to turn back to God first requires me to think differently about what I'm doing and say, I am wrong. And that is a pretty humble thing, isn't it? To not justify ourselves or our actions or our attitudes by somebody else. Well, sure, this is bad, but you're worse, that kind of stuff. To say, I'm wrong, 
and I need to change means I need to turn back to God. That's a humble statement. So both the idea of coming to God for our provision and coming to God to, for the forgiveness of sins requires humility. God says, I will abundantly pardon. He's not going to go, oh, yeah, you loser. He doesn't do that. He says he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. And here's, and here's a challenge. And there's two challenges on your, on your uh, card, your, your connections card. There's actually a challenge to memorize this scripture right here. And we would do well to memorize this scripture. Verses 8 and 9. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Nor are my ways your ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So maybe God has a different view of things. And maybe because he's good, we should trust him. And in the midst of that, we can find reasons to be thankful. It will generate a thankful heart. So number one is to learn humility. Lesson number two is to have faith. Have faith. If we learn humility, we also need to have faith. And we, we're going to gain faith by being in God's word and by, by being in his presence. But listen, your story isn't just your story. It's God's story, and he has a longer view, and your story isn't over. Have faith that there is an unseen God who loves you and that your benefit is wrapped up in his glory. Your story isn't over. Think about Leah. She could have thought her story was over, and she didn't know that through her, the one who was cast off, who had to, be, who had to have her, her, her future husband tricked into marrying her, the Messiah would come. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba. Their story wasn't over just because the circumstances looked dark, and neither is yours. Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 says this, Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. See, because if I'm going to thank God for answering my prayer, that in and of itself is a statement of faith, isn't it? Try it sometime. Thank God for answering your prayer. Come to him with thanksgiving. As a matter of fact, let me give you the second challenge, and it's not written in your thing, but let me give you a challenge. Sometime this week, take your alarm and set it for 15 minutes. And decide that you're going to sit in a quiet place where you can pray out loud. And pray out loud for 15 minutes. And do nothing except thank him. Now, why do you set the alarm for 15 minutes? Because I guarantee you, because I've done it, I guarantee you that you're going to go through the, the generalist. Thank you for my kids, and thank you for uh, the country that we live in, and thank you for my church, and thank you for my pastor, and thank you for whatever. Thank you for my health. And you're going to get through a list of things that you generally thank him for, and you look down, and you're going to go, <clears throat> that's about 90 seconds. <laughs> I got like, you know, 13 and a half minutes to go. And what will happen when you do this? What will happen is you'll actually have to step back and really start to think about things that you're thankful for. God, I am thankful I am thankful that when I was a young punk and we were out drinking and my friend was driving and we were, he was drunk and I wasn't a Christian and I used to, I used to rail against you and I, I didn't even believe in you, that when my friend was driving drunk and decided that he wanted to end his life, this is a true story, he wanted to end his life and the, and the three other people in the car decided we didn't want to end our life either and he started, he put his foot to the accelerator and was going to kill himself with us in the car, true story, 19, 1981, and God saved my life. When I was his enemy, God saved my life. 
Did I ever go back and thank him for all the times before I was ever a Christian that he intervened in my life? And you start doing this and start thanking him for things. When that happens, come back and tell me how your perspective has changed. Boy, it's revolutionary. It is revolutionary. really challenge you to do that. Come to him with thanksgiving and let your request be made known to God. And here's what will happen. Here's the promise of what will happen. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind through Christ Jesus. I guarantee you if you do that for 15 minutes, even just one time, you will do it again and again and again because there will be such a sense of peace that will come upon your heart and your mind. We need to have faith that God is who he says he is. So lesson number two is to have faith because your story isn't over. Lesson number three is trust God. I know it might seem hard, but trust him. He is good, and he's working with a knowledge and perspective that I do not have. Trust him because you know what? No matter where you are to date, even if you screwed everything up, it is not too late. Your legacy can change. Even if to, to, to this point your legacy is nothing but destruction, your legacy from this point forward can change. As long as you're sitting here and you're listening to me talk and you're using oxygen, your legacy can change. It can change. Go look people up. Boaz was an older guy. I think about, I think about Boaz. I think about Judah, fourth in line. What does he have to offer? Perez. Imagine Perez. He's the son of... His, how was, the, how was Thanksgiving there? Like, like my mom is, and my dad is actually, that's his daughter-in-law, and this is all weird, and he must have, think about his own identity. How could he go to his father and ask for advice when his father had had him by his daughter-in-law, and all weirdness. What happened with Perez? And yet, you see that Perez had gotten it because Judah had gotten it. Your legacy can change. If Judah's legacy could change, then our legacy can change as well. If David, after messing up with, with Bathsheba and after doing all the bad things that he had done there and actually having his, one of his best friends killed, could still be in the line of kings that would, from where the king of kings could come, then our legacy can change as well. Hebrews chapter 13, and I'll leave you with this, says this, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The same God that changed the legacy of, of Judah, the same God that showed up to Joseph and said, go ahead and trust me on this, that, that child that Mary has is not the child of sin, but the child from the Holy Spirit, and he is the Messiah. Take her to yourself and don't listen to what anybody else says. Just listen to me. That's the same Jesus that is here today. And that if you've put your faith and trust in him that is living in you right now by the Holy Spirit, <clears throat> so the challenge is to stop looking with your, with your eyes at what is happening now and ask God how he sees things. And even if he's silent, trust him because he's doing something and he's working. And the closer you get to him, the closer I get to him, the more I benefit because he has a different story and a different perspective on your story. He knows you by name. And you and I are part of his legacy. Let's pray. God, you're great and mighty and your ways are beyond ours. We don't understand. 
And sometimes we look at the individual circumstances in our life and we look at what's happening and, and, and maybe, it's, maybe we've, we've, we've messed things up and we haven't saved for retirement and we're, we're facing an unknown future or, or we've screwed things up and messed up our marriage and, 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 or maybe there's, there's things in our life and we look at ourselves and we say, it's too late, it's over, God could never use me. Lord, banish those lies from our mind. Give us faith to see who you are and give us the ability to take a risk and trust you in it and generate a thankful spirit within each of, us, uh, each of us. And in doing so, Lord, use us that when other people see us, they would see something different and that difference would draw them to you. And so, Lord, make yourself larger and glorify yourself through our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Now listen, if, uh, if you're sitting here this morning and, and you have questions or there's anything we can pray for you about, um, we'll be up here. There'll be people here to pray for you. I'll be here if there's anything we can help you with. Um, if you would like to, to know Jesus better and you came in this morning and didn't, um, see me afterwards. Let's talk, okay? Um, take those things and remember to do those two things. Rem memorize that scripture and, um, and take some time with God this week and thank him. All right? God bless you.